Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this latest episode of the Spiked podcast, I just wanted to thank all of you who are donating to Spiked. It's thanks to your contributions that we can keep producing our fearless and challenging journalism, even in the most difficult and censorious times. So we cannot thank you enough. For those of you who haven't yet made a donation to Spiked, but would like to, all we're asking for at the moment is £5 per month. If that sounds doable, it's really easy to give by going to spiked-online.com and hitting the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thanks in advance and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show the row over rural Britannia, the Republican National Convention and the return of schools. Reports suggested the lyrics would be dropped from this year's Last Night because of sensitivity about Britain's imperial past. Songs that still sound patriotic to some are now out of step, even in century to others. Britain ruled the waves and never ever shall be slaves. He's talking about the slave trade. I think it's time we stop this general bout of self-recrimination and wetness. This year's Last Night of the Proms was always going to be a bit unusual. Because of the pandemic, the BBC's flagship classical music event will take place without an audience. But in a move which has angered many, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the BBC announced this week that there would be no traditional sing-along of Land of Hope and Glory or Rule Britannia, which normally closes the show. Instead, the songs will be performed without the lyrics. At the weekend, BBC sources told The Times that the songs could be scrapped entirely in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. The lyrics are unashamedly nationalistic and in Rule Britannia's case make reference to slavery. Tom, what are your thoughts on this uh, controversy? So yeah, it's been a story which has been dominating this week, again kind of starting with discussions about dropping these songs entirely, not performing them at all reports that the woman who will be conducting the last night is among those who are keen to kind of modernise the repertoire to get rid of these patriotic elements, suggesting she was a big supporter of, of Black Lives Matter. And interestingly saying that she thought that a ceremony without an audience in the middle of a pandemic is the perfect moment to bring change, which I think tells you something about how the the tendencies that these people see within the audience more than anything else. And what I think has characterised the debate about it so far has been the denialism on the part of the BBC, as well as people who are trying to downplay the idea that this is a discussion at all. So as you say, you had the BBC come to this bizarre position, which is to say, we are going to perform it without the lyrics, which is ridiculous when you think about it, given the fact that these are both kind of sing-along numbers in the last night of the proms, citing coronavirus, but it's still being more or less an excuse. You had a lot of people trying to say this had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter whatsoever, despite the fact that if you go back to that Sunday Times story, the people who were actually quoted on record are explicitly referring to it. And ever since then, you've seen a lot of people within the cultural establishment more broadly, again, chiming in with this kind of sentiment that Royal Britannia is an ugly nationalistic thing and that we shouldn't be singing it. I think most memorably, Cat Lewis, who's the executive producer on Songs of Praise, 
likening Brit singing Royal Britannia to Nazis singing about never being sent to gas chambers, I think. So it's quite clear that despite all of that denialism, the idea that these songs are a problem, that they speak to some kind of ugly jingoistic sentiment and that they're best done away with was pretty widespread. And I think it's interesting as well is that it's kind of stirred up this kind of conversation about who started the culture wars. So you've got a lot of people on the left making a point of saying this is something which has basically just been confected. It's been invented by right-wing shock jocks that they've got something to talk about, which of course is nonsense because this came from within the BBC itself. And I think you also see this incredibly evasive attitude that a lot of these kind of left identitarians have, which is especially in the wake of the kind of woke cultural revolution we've seen after the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protest, is to say, we didn't call for this, but we do agree with it. So, I mean, it's this kind of idea as if they have absolutely nothing to do with it. They can wash their hands of it, despite the fact they fundamentally agree with all of the sentiments behind censoring Royal Britannia or slapping a trigger warning on 40 Towers or whatever else it happens to be. And I think it just kind of speaks to that sense in which throughout this kind of culture war, you've got one side which is really claiming not to be waging one at all. There's this kind of real gaslighting aspect to it in which they're really kind of pushing forward this movement, but at the same time trying to take no responsibility for it. And I think it also speaks to a, a thing about Black Lives Matter, which doesn't get underlined enough or about the kind of moment that we're in, is that this isn't necessarily a kind of concerted movement. This isn't a group of campaigners going around and going to the BBC one day about last night at the proms or going to Netflix the other day about certain sitcoms that they dislike. It's wrapped itself around a general cultural mood and a general sense within particularly the cultural elite and the establishment. They do have this kind of profound discomfort with freedom of speech, with aspects of Britain's history, but also most fundamentally with with British people themselves. You know, there's this kind of sense in which the problem with Royal Britannia is not that it has echoes of a more imperialistic, nationalistic past. It's that it could activate or give vent to those kinds of sentiments in the present. And I think that comment that you saw from the conductor of the last night, the proms, this idea that supposedly she saw the absence of the audience as being that great moment for change, I think speaks to that tendency that you see within these people. Ella? Oh, please, BBC, don't make me defend Rural Britannia. Please, <laughs> it hurts me. But I do have to defend it. We do because it is not, as Tom says, it's not a racist anthem. Uh, it actually has quite an interesting history when you look at it and when it was written, written by two Scottish poets, James Thompson and David Mallet in the early 1700s. And particularly James Thompson was living in Britain. So he was trying to ingratiate himself with the Brits in this way that is reflected in the song itself. You know, it's full of kind of pomp and bluster. That's made all the more significant by the fact that when Thomas Ern set it to music and it was performed for the first time in a mask based on Alfred the Great for King George II's son, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, who loved it because it was full of this kind of pomp and it was not jingoistic, but kind of like an imaginary patriotism because actually at that time, during the early 1700s, British imperialism wasn't at its height. It wasn't until later in the 1800s and into the early 1900s that Britain became the empire on which the sun never sets, that famous quote. So it's had this quite interesting historical journey. It's never been used as a kind of anthem of the British National Party. It wasn't, to my knowledge, particularly favoured song by Mosley. It doesn't have any of the kind of darker histories of the sort of racist movement. Obviously, it has this, these lines in it relating to slavery, but, you know, it's a historical document, a historical source. And most importantly, it's a song that's primarily sung by middle class attendees of the proms. <laughs> it's not whistled 
by your average imaginary, you know, racist working class Brexit voter that the people who oppose it like to dream up. All of that aside, the most important point is that the idea that this song is so offensive to be banned is ridiculous. I mean, when I first heard about the fact that the lyrics weren't going to be sung, I thought, oh, it's what is it because, you know, audiences can't sing it because of coronavirus and droplets and singing and projection. And then you find out that there's not going to be an audience at the prom. So you think, what? That's confusing. And then there's this suggestion, a rumor that turns out to be true that the lyrics are going to come back next year. So the whole thing is just a ridiculous mess to try and cover up the fact that the BBC, as it has done in the past, has tried to make this kind of ham-fisted, tokenistic approach to anti-racism, basically by pissing off not just fans of the proms, but normal people in England who, whether they are huge fans of Royal Britannia or Land of Hope and Glory or not, recognise that this trend to kind of censor out and neuter out all aspects of culture for fear of offence is deeply corrosive. Yeah, I, I think that's the key point, really. I mean, what is so interesting about the kind of cultural moment we're living through is the way that it is, to use a crude phrase, it colonises literally everything. The supporters of this kind of cultural cleansing cannot even support these two songs being sung once a year at one event. It's amazing to me. And the way that these songs are talked about as imperial nostalgia or whatever, you know, they, it's it's a good thing that the British Empire is over and singing these songs is not going to bring them back. And even, you know, when talking about the kind of people who watch last night's at the proms or attend the concerts in person, I mean, it was telling that a couple of years ago, the audience was kind of awash with EU flags. Last year, it was was very kind of LGBT themed where a singer pulled out the pride flag instead of the British flag while singing Royal Britannia. And they loved it. You know, there's basically a lot of them are home counties Remainers rather than old school golf club racists that they're imagined to be. But I suppose there's just this attitude that anyone who's above a certain age is probably a racist. Anyone who likes traditional British culture is probably a racist. And, and, you know, who cares about them? Let's take away their fun. And if they kick up a fuss, then that's just yet more proof (laughs) that they're backwards uh, reactionary racists. Tom, your thoughts? I think you're right. I think it's the authoritarianism of all of it and the underlying kind of distaste for ordinary people or for just certain groups of people, which underpins a lot of this backlash. Because I think even in some of the commentary around this, which is trying to take a kind of almost like cut down the middle sort of position, trying to suggest that the thing about the culture war as it is kicking off in the UK at the moment is that you basically have two sides almost as ridiculous as each other. You've got kind of insane woke left on the other side and you've got these kind of flag-waving right-wing culture warriors on the other who are just going to jump on these things for retweets. Now, obviously, there are people like that on the on both sides, and we know them when we see them. But at the same time, I think that the real dynamic really is between this kind of cultural elite and, and people in general, who, again, won't necessarily be reading newspapers and being shocked and appalled at this because they absolutely love Last Night at the Proms and watch it absolutely every single year that the hairs on the back of their neck stand on end when they sing along to Royal Britannia. <laughs> it's the authoritarianism of it. It's the idea that there can be no sphere of cultural life or public life which isn't sending the correct message and I think it also Mm. one of the things that really gets people's backs up because it just sort of again kind of transmits this message which is very prominent amongst cultural elite which is that Britain is basically just kind of a foul place it's got a foul history the people in it are unpleasant they hold all these different kinds of prejudices and that every single opportunity you have to try and correct that way of thinking should be seized upon. And it's that thing which gets people's backs up. It's not a kind of 
people are being polarised, people are being driven into positions that they wouldn't otherwise hold, people are being driven to defend things that they otherwise wouldn't defend. They're just kind of sticking up for a kind of much more laid back, free and easy kind of approach to these sorts of things, which wouldn't treat, as you say, the fact that these songs are basically sung on a big public platform once a year as a huge issue that needs to be dealt with seriously and corrected. And again, I I think what's kind of interesting is in all these kinds of arguments about is this confected or not, the reason that we see all of these things come up time and time again, you know, we we almost don't need to get into the specifics of what it is that the BBC are going to do next year, what was actually the motivation for pulling the lyrics this year. Mm. It's quite clear that amongst the cultural establishment in general, the default position has been that you do need to do this kind of cultural cleansing you do need to do this kinds of censorship and underpinning that is a view of the public and a view of ordinary people which is incredibly low and as an incredibly kind of unpleasant blob that's what angers people it's not because people you know recite Royal Britannia every year and absolutely love it it's because they know that these campaigns of cultural cleansing are a authoritarian and b hold them in contempt You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The Republican National Convention took place this week, and it was unmistakably all about Trump. Trump made a number of cameo appearances throughout, as did numerous members of his family, from First Lady Melania Trump to Donald Jr.'s girlfriend. Trump is trailing in most polls. He's got an incredibly low approval rating, and 70% of Americans think the country is on the wrong track. But the RNC highlighted a number of issues where Trump could be on stronger footing, like violent crime, the economy, and even free speech. Tom, what have you made of this week's convention? Well, I think it's really highlighted what are a lot of Trump's obvious weaknesses, but also some of his strengths, which people haven't really been paying enough attention to up until this point. Now, of course, it was a bit of a circus. It was definitely the RNC does the culture war. You know, you had Nick Sandman from the Covington Catholic Boys controversy giving a speech. You had the McCloskeys, those, uh, that couple from St. Louis who were standing outside of their sort of little mini mansion brandishing rifles and handguns when Black Lives Matter protesters were making their way past. As you say, you had Kimberly Guilfoyle, who was Don Jr.'s girlfriend, working herself up into a kind of froth <laughs> over the prospect of four <laughs> more years of Donald Trump, which is very, very strange. So there was a lot of this kind of circus aspect to it, which again, could go either way. You know, it's at least it's something of a spectacle, whereas the DNC was quite boring in many respects. You see, first of all, how a lot of the kind of messaging coming out of the uh, Republican campaign is a little bit confused. You have them at the same time trying to suggest that Joe Biden is some kind of insufficiently woke candidate, that he backed the crime bill, that he helped criminalise all of these black men in the 1990s and led to mass incarceration, all of which is true. But it seems like a slightly strange argument to be making whilst at the same time trying to suggest that he's actually been captured by the far left in the form of Kamala Harris, as well as further to the left, the squad, etc., who are dictating his policy platform and will turn America into a socialist dystopia. So it's kind of slightly confusing messages there and a slightly unfortunate tendency to meet the kind of politics of fear that's coming from the Democratic Party about Trump just pulling down American democracy with this idea that Biden is 
essentially a kind of useful idiot of some sort of Marxist insurgency, <laughs> which is not necessarily particularly useful. But on the strong points, I thought one of the things that were interesting was, again, the spectre of the riots are going to be really significant for Trump, as we know. And it's more significant for Trump because of the Democrats' ability to even talk about them. Yeah. You know, again, when we saw the rioting kick off in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after there being another horrendous police shooting there, the only thing that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can really bring themselves to say is to just launch into kind of platitudes about how we need to mourn in Joe Biden's case it was a bit of a strange statement because the bloke is actually still alive and just talking about the police rather than finding any way to be able to say two things at the same time that police brutality is a terrible thing but at the same time burning down neighbourhoods and destroying what are in many cases black owned businesses is a horrendous and nihilistic response to that that's definitely helping them and also the questions coming back to the cultural war stuff not to dismiss it as cultural war but a very genuine concern that people have in America about the tightening up of free speech about concerns about cancel culture, the Covington Catholic boys in particular as being a real symbol of a group of completely innocent kids who were done over by a media establishment who just went for them out of nothing more than prejudice. I think all of those things are actually potentially quite powerful. And I think especially given the fact that concerns around political correctness, a sense that the coastal democratic elites in particular had become not only distant from ordinary people's concerns, but actually quite disdainful with their way of life was quite a key part to Trump's platform last time around. I think given all that's going on, even there's so much counting against him, he's also been handed a lot of fertile ground to make those kinds of points in the midst of this campaign as well. Yeah, definitely. Ella? Well, it's exactly as Tom says, the most frustrating thing and the kind of brilliant thing from a Republican's point of view of the approach that much of the RNC has followed and Trump has followed is to utilise and weaponize the idea of cancel culture. You know, the more Democrats dig into this whole idea of that's sort of all pervasive now of identity politics, but of that there are certain things that are off limits and there are certain people who are evil Trump and that really you have to vote for Biden because he's not Trump. The more Trump seems like someone who's standing up for something principled. And even when it comes from quite extreme people. So one of the speeches from the Republican convention that I picked up on that has had some coverage, but I think not as much as it deserves, was the contribution from Marsha Blackburn, who's the Republican senator for Tennessee, who makes this quite remarkable speech in which she time and again references cancel culture. And she says, and you know, it's made even better in a Tennessee accent and I'm not going to mimic it. You know, they can't cancel our heroes. Our heroes can't be cancelled. And she's talking primarily about police officers referencing the chaos that's going on in Wisconsin, in Portland, in Minnesota, in different parts of the country. She mentions emergency service workers, the armed services, but really she's talking about cops and she's very very strong on this. You can't cancel our heroes. They can try, but they won't. And that will really chime with a lot of Trump voters. I mean, she also then layers it in with other stuff. So she talks about the fact that leftists want cancel culture to happen. And she says, if the Democrats had their way, they'd keep you locked up in your house until you were dependent on the government for everything. That sounds like communist China to me. (laughs) You know, it's really quite extreme. And actually, it's really quite simple. And I suspect that it's going to work. I think the thing that Trump is able to do successfully is open up support on the basis of colouring everything about his campaign against cancel culture. You know, the guy who is most 
sensitive about fake news and about people criticizing him being able to take the mantle of standing up for free speech is quite something but he does it successfully and then he's able to bolster people like Blackburn who then is allowed free reign to talk about things like anti-abortion policies you know one of the speakers at the RNC Abby Johnson someone who believes in household voting which is like you know daddy gets a vote and and mum doesn't so it's quite worrying but it's seems to be quite successful. It was really interesting to see that not once did the Democrats mention the fact that Trump was impeached this year, and yet the impeachment came up multiple times at the Republican convention. Now, you would think, logically, why would anyone want to remind <laughs> why do they want to remind people that the president was impeached? But it's because everyone has a sense that that was unfair, that that was unreasonable. Let's not forget the obsession of the Democrats for years and years and years was about the impeachment of Trump, making sure he adheres to the rules. When actually the appeal of Trump, particularly to a kind of lot of working class voters, is that he is straight shooting, shoots from the hip, doesn't follow the game, doesn't go along with what the swamp, as he calls it, what they expect of him. But on the other hand, the other challenge for Trump is that he, in the midterm, certainly lost a lot of suburban voters, you know, normally would vote Republican, switch to the Democrats, who actually see things the opposite way. They've had enough of his antics, and he's trying to kind of win them back by talking up the riots and talking up the possibility of violent crime. And it's interesting to see Trump's own little identity politics here, because he keeps referring to, quite explicitly, to suburban housewives and suburban women. He said, that, quote, suburban housewife, unquote, will be voting for me. He sometimes even capitalizes suburban women when he tweets. <laughs> Just, you know, he has that kind of demographic in mind so clearly at the forefront. So it's, it's interesting to see, you know, kind of Trump's version of the kind of attempt to segment the electorate in the way that we saw, you know, the Democrats appealing to different racial and identity groups. I think the other thing is that for all of the Democrats' attempt to kind of paint Trump in particular as a kind of a uniquely in it for himself, sociopathic, not concerned with the interests of ordinary people, there's just so much that he can kind of throw back at them. The impeachment is a really good example as far as it just seeing as if you had a party kind of throw all precedent and all belief in the democratic process out in the pursuit of just political gain and to get rid of someone that they absolutely distasted. You've seen it in the whole kinds of rows over the nature of the voting process so far. So obviously you have the Democrats with some justification suggesting that Trump is trying to call into question the result of the election because of the reliance this year on postal ballots, etc. But on the other side, you have Democrats kind of over-egging his attempts in this respect, trying to suggest that the result may potentially not be legitimate. And of course, most strikingly, Hillary Clinton coming out and suggesting that Joe Biden shouldn't concede defeat in the election, given all of this that's going on. So again, you kind of see a lot of those kinds of mirror image tendencies on the other side. And then even things that you see coming up in the discussion as well, the Covington boys scandal, or even the Kavanaugh thing, which really cut through with a lot of people in America as well, because they saw a complete circus, a complete kind of partisan mm. witch hunt go on in relation to allegations, which as anyone who looked into them in any detail, were really not as strong as people were trying to make out. So to the extent that the Republicans can remind voters about all of these different scandals. It does kind of paint the picture of the Democrats as, again, being in it for themselves, being blinded by their partisanship, and also being blinded by ideology to the point where they spend all of their time at their convention talking about issues of systemic racism, talking about the historical stain of slavery, etc. But 
unable to address the fact that there are literally hundreds of cities in America at the moment on fire. And they seem incapable of speaking to ordinary people's concerns in that respect. And I think, again, given the fact that the narrative going into this so far has been that Biden has it in the bag, that no one could possibly vote for, <laughs> vote for Trump, given the fact that they have resorted to a lot of their worst tendencies, it's not surprising to see as Frank Luntz, who's the Republican pollster and communications strategist, point out recently that um, Biden is actually behind where Hillary was in a lot of the key swing states at this point in the cycle, particularly in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, places that she would go on to lose. And it does seem like even for all of the deficiencies and for all of the ludicrous sideshow that is the Trump campaign from time to time, the Democrats have handed him a lot of very useful territory in which to operate, given their inability to kind of meet the moment that it seems like America is facing right now. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Schools are finally reopening as children return to the classroom after months of lockdown. But just days before most schools were due to reopen, the government performed a screeching U-turn on its advice on mask wearing. Face coverings will now be mandatory in secondary schools, in communal areas and corridors, in towns under local lockdown, while other schools can decide their own mask policy. The Prime Minister maintains that it would be nonsensical to make children wear face masks in the classroom, however. Ella, you've uh, written about this U-turn this week. What are your thoughts? It's bad news for schools. It really is. And for kids, more importantly. I mean, the issue of masks has been hotly contested. I think lots of people are now bored of rowing about masks. On the one hand, there's a kind of relatively sensible view that it's useful to wear it when you're in brief encounters like going in shops or going on public transport in which it protects from droplets. And it's just that extra bit of protection that might help someone else out. And always in the back of your mind, you should have the idea that however safe you feel, there are people out there who need to be shielded. And from my point of view, you know, wearing a mask in those instances, if it means that someone else can come out of isolation, I think that's a good thing. But it's a completely different realm when you take that into a situation like schools, in which we're dealing with children who all evidence shows are not the super spreaders we believe them to be. There has been no credible evidence of the significance of children passing on the virus to each other or to their teachers, to adults, to their parents. You know, it's ridiculous to expect teenagers, even the most smart teenagers, to be able to maintain the proper wearing of masks. You know, they take them on and off. Kids do things like share cutlery and snog each other for hours on end. There's no practical way in which you could expect them to do this properly. So it ends up being pointless. But I think for me, the most important thing, which is people are hostile to weighing up risks. And there has been a sentiment throughout this pandemic that it's just all about stopping the spread of the virus, you know, understandably, but there's none of the other considerations None of the other consequences are taken into consideration. But if you are expecting kids to wear masks in schools, even if it's just in the corridors, that is going to have a very detrimental effect on their development and on their social lives. I mean, asking young people who have been cooped up and kept away from their friends for months on end now at this point to go in and not be able to see each other, not be able to touch each other and have to maintain social distancing is not just impractical, it's cruel. 
And I think we have to say, what is the risk of children being allowed to go around without masks? It's quite low. You know, can you do sensible things in relation to getting teachers to socially distance between each other when they're at most risk in the staff room? And actually say that there are consequences of getting kids to wear masks in this way and actually getting teachers to police the wearing of masks is just not worth it when there's not the evidence that it's necessary. Tom? No, I think what the, particularly the masks in schools things has revealed is that so much of this is not really about the evidence whatsoever. I mean, even if you put to one side the arguments over masks themselves and their effectiveness, no one is genuinely suggesting that schools are particularly a kind of serious place in which the virus spreads. You know, over the past week, you've seen Chris Whitty and all the other um, chief medical officers from across the UK sign this letter, laying out all the information that they now have insofar as, again, schools not being a key place for transmission, pointing out the facts, as Public Health England have found recently, that in terms of the outbreaks that have happened in schools that have stayed open or have come back recently, the vast, vast majority of them are cases of teachers giving it to one another rather than school Mm. kids giving it to one another or a school kid giving it to teachers. Again, making the point that in terms of actually young people dying from COVID, you know, they're more likely to die from being hit by a bolt of lightning or from seasonal flu, which again is not something which whenever that flares up, we send kids to school in face masks. So this isn't, there's nothing in here actually about the science and what the evidence suggests. And if anything, all the points that the government and their public health advisors were making until almost yesterday with the problems with masks insofar as people being able to contaminate them (laughs) again not putting them on properly not washing your hands before you take them on and off and all the rest of it kids are going to be far worse offenders as Ella says for all of those things than adults certainly would be it just makes absolutely no sense the problem is is that we have at the moment where in terms of kind of coronavirus policy it has just become a competition of, of who can be the most authoritarian and therefore look the most serious that's all this comes down to the reason that Nicola Sturgeon has been able to sort of present herself as someone who has taken coronavirus far more seriously has nothing to do with her effectiveness in relation to deaths or containing the virus or whatever it's just her willingness to go for the most authoritarian measures with the most speed and the unfortunate tendency now of the government as we saw in particular with this face mask in schools issue to just follow her lead the terms of the debate are even if it doesn't make any benefit even if there's no scientific justification for it even if there's some indications that maybe it might have some adverse consequences you might as well do it anyway you know it, it just seems that we're trapped in this horrendous kind of feedback loop in relation to policies of this kind and i think it really demonstrates on the one hand a kind of failure of political leadership on the behalf of the government their inability to just make a very strong clear argument which is to say not only is it safe to send kids back to schools not only is it important that we send them back to schools not only will they come to more harm if we don't send them back to schools but also this masks thing it's just a non-starter for all of these sorts of reasons there's a failure there but i think especially on behalf of the teachers union and the teachers there's a failure of kind of just kind of adult leadership and taking responsibility in their own professional realms as well. You know, I mean, again, there was someone on the stay program this week who was a head teacher of a school who were demanding that kids were wearing visors and face masks or whatever. And at one point he made the point that this was to reassure teachers that they felt safe to come back, which again is just absolutely ridiculous. And in terms of the long-term consequences of all this stuff, on the one hand, it's very much true that kids are not really going to observe these rules that much anyway. You know, they just will fall back into their own patterns of being. But at the same time, if we talk about the longer-term effects of all of these policies on how we interact, you do have a generation of young people who are going to be raised with the constant reminder that they should think of each other as vectors of disease, even where in this case, there's not even much evidence to back that up. And that is going to have longer-term impacts on kind of society more broadly, which again, in the rush to just be to look the most serious has not really been considered at all. I'm about to make a difficult point and I want to preface it with the fact that teachers 
most of them have been a working throughout the pandemic, you know, doing Zoom classes and doing as much as they can for their students to keep them educated throughout these bizarre times. And two, most teachers also want to get back into the classroom, want to do their job, miss the kids that they teach, uh, want to get back and stuck in. But there is a disconnect between that very honourable sentiment and practical sentiment and the message that we're still getting out of some teachers unions who normally I would defend and support. There's a kind of petty bourgeois preciousness going on in the continued scaremongering around teacher safety in schools because with very little to no evidence that kids are going to pose a risk to teachers. There's a lot of evidence that shows that kids have suffered from being kept away from school. And so the sort of unwillingness to actually make a sacrifice and say that this is something that we have to do, put kids first and get them back into education and get them back into environments in which their social lives can develop and flourish without wearing masks is sort of lacking in the discussion. And I'm disappointed by the fact that some teachers don't recognize the kind of deaverish way in which they're acting. And I'm not saying that lightly because there are people, adults, who have made sacrifices throughout this pandemic, not just being in and amongst kids, but being in amongst other adults when the risk is significantly higher. So people working in supermarkets who have throughout this pandemic very crappy PPE in many circumstances, continue to allow us to have food. Pharmacists have continued to work. Delivery drivers have continued to come into our homes. High-vis man working on the road. You know, all these people have risked their health. I haven't even mentioned health workers who, you know, have recognised that there are things that are bigger than individuals in this pandemic. And that might sound like a very controversial point when you take into consideration the fact that schools are not the hotbeds of disease that we once thought them to be at the start of the pandemic pandemic before we had all the evidence, it seems, you know, not just precious, but actually obstinate and unnecessarily stubborn for some teachers to still be resisting this and still be pushing for teachers' unions to be pushing for the masks. It had also has to be said that I actually don't blame and I have sympathy for teachers who are really scared about this because you have to remember that the government has been for the last few months, even while numbers have been falling, pushing the idea that if you so much as brush up against someone in a tube, you're risking life and death. So there is still a huge amount of fear that's going on and we should do all we can to give teachers our support in saying, we're behind you in getting our kids back into class. We'll give you the resources that you need, but let's approach this with a kind of level head and an eye to thinking, what is it that we have to do to make kids' lives better? And I feel like I probably say this every time we talk about the virus or the lockdown, and especially in the last few weeks, but we are talking about it is not March or April anymore. People are not dying in their thousands from this virus anymore. On the 19th of August, not a single person died in the country from the virus. There's only about 600 people currently in hospitals in, in England and Wales with the virus. You know, And that's out of probably about 90,000 people, I think, who are otherwise in hospital. You know, less people are dying from coronavirus now than are dying from seasonal flu and pneumonia. And it's the summer, so not many people are dying of those things. And there is this really strange tendency when assessing the risk to not even take that into account, to, to, to take into account the fact that barring a second wave, which could well be, you know, on the horizon at some point, but barring that, you know, the risks are really, really minimal at the moment. And people are treating it like, 
they're going to drop dead as soon as they step foot into a classroom. And, you know, it's really, really important to put those things into perspective so that we can get back to normal as soon as possible. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 